Well, welcome everybody, and thank you for joining our webcast today. As you know, the Association of Value-Based Cancer Care is responsible for information and dialogue in our ecosystem across all stakeholder groups. This ensures that patients will win on access and quality. We need to constantly improve and change our tactics and our deliverables in cancer care. This is why we hold these webcasts. This is why you're dialing in. We have key opinion leaders, the influencers, the important decision makers who are driving change in our ecosystem. Please join us, participate, ask questions, and offer your voice too. It's hugely important. So thank you for joining. We look forward to participating with you more. Stay safe. Thank you. Thank you for uh, spending some time with us this morning and sharing some of the uh, important information that you've been able to share with the greater ABBCC community on the economic impact on the cancer care ecosystem. And I keep saying I'm always jealous of you guys because you have all the data, but you certainly shared a lot with us. You know, what were your basic takeaways? Because, I mean, you focus on everything in the ecosystem of healthcare, but we asked you specifically about cancer. What were the two or three things that seem to stand out in your mind when we look at cancer economics today? Thanks, Bert, and good to share some thoughts with you on this. So I think the big takeaway that we have is that we have seen a return to the pre-pandemic levels of activity in oncology. When we look at the number of in-person consultations, when we look at the number of newly diagnosed patients, referrals, the new prescription starts for oncology therapeutics. I mean, most things now as of around the end of July are back at around the level they were in the baseline, which we take as the eight weeks ending the end of February. Mm-hmm. So we've got patients coming back. We've got services being provided. Clearly, there's still a lot of uncertainty about how that's going to play out going forward. What we haven't, of course, had is a clearing of the backlog, if you like, that resulted from that steep decline in activity that we saw in April, uh, May timeframe. Uh, Mm -hmm. So that's still sitting out there. But in terms of the overall national numbers that we're tracking, the oncology area is showing resiliency. And we've definitely seen the numbers climb slowly back to that baseline level. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So one of the things that I, I would also question that I've heard, I don't know if you measure that, is some of these practices, I mean, well, if you look at cancer care, 30% might be delivered in large cancer centers, but still 60 to 70%, depending on the region, is delivered in community settings. The community oncologist, the five doc, ten doc practices, even sometimes two doc practices that exist. So my question that I would ask you is, uh, we've heard that a lot of these practices are not back to normal with their staffing. The kids have to be watched, schools are still out, and they can't return to a full schedule. The other that I heard was um, the way they're receiving patients is, you know, you sit in the parking lot and you watch your phone and they text you, Murray, and they say, okay, now come into the tent. Then they get you in the tent and, okay, temperature's right, a few questions they ask. Now we let you into the waiting room. Okay, now we can let you into the infusion room. So none of these facilities that I've 
been talking to are operating at 100%. So when you tell me you're seeing demand come back according to the baseline, you don't see any impact on the platforms that are, you know, what I'm hearing is that they're just not at capacity and it's going to be a while until they can get back at 100% of what they used to be able to service. Well, we're not able to track the sort of capacity that's out there. We're just tracking the number of patients who are coming through and the, and the number mm-hmm. of diagnoses that are being made. Again, it's relative to the baseline period. So there is some thought about whether January, February is the right baseline, baseline. you know, mm-hmm. indeed. To that would use. make sense. The, the other thing I would point out is that we are tracking telehealth visits, which we know has taken some of the demand capacity. So we're tracking about 6% of oncology patient interactions through telehealth. That's actually down as a percentage a bit from the April-May timeframe when it reached about uh, 10%. That is one mechanism that, you know, arguably has expanded the capacity by enabling people to consult virtually instead of in person. But I think your point about the new protocols that are in place, the new requirements of patients, you know, these do represent some level of constraint Mm -hmm. on the system. But I think we're going to get used to that. And maybe the available hours that the clinics are open may be expanded a bit in order to try to accommodate the same number of patients as in the past. So I think we're, we're still in this period of adapting to this new reality of what it takes to visit an oncologist and to receive care and, and right. to deliver that mm-hmm. care. Yeah. Yeah. It just seems like a disconnect when I talk to community practice and I see your numbers and I just wonder if they seem to tell me they're not operating at full capacity. And yeah, of course there was a warehouse effect, right? Because right. there were a lot of people waiting to come back in. And we saw the impact of newly diagnosed. Have we seen an uptick in a movement from infused therapies to oral options where there are some? Are you starting to see that? So we have seen that when we look at the orals, we've seen a stronger return to the baseline levels than for IV oncology agents. Uh, And in particular, in the month of July, we did see a drop-off in the volume of IV agents being used. So that, that's what we're tracking. You know, some of that might be a sort of summer schedule that I know sometimes practices adopt, but we're watching that pretty closely. The numbers for the last three weeks in, in July were down from the June numbers, for example. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, and that kind of corresponds with, there are treatment options and, you know, infused versus oral. We've seen some of that in the hospital shifts too, as patients aren't coming into hospitals. So drug launches, I've heard from manufacturers that they're having difficulty connecting with a new drug launch. You know, yes, they got the approvals, but the access to the decision makers to present these drugs and their technology for consideration to get onto their protocols, their formularies, or their pathways, they're having some problems. Do you detect any late launches, you know, drugs coming on where you might have thought earlier some of this innovation being held back by the inability to connect with the docs and educate them on use of this technology? 
So we're definitely seeing adaptation of the approach to launching drugs in a, in a more, much more virtual world. We have been tracking the number of new oncology approvals, which have run up to 11 this year already as of last week. And that compares to 12 new cancer drugs in all of 2019. So the scientific innovation is continuing to flow at a strong pace in oncology. But definitely building awareness and pursuing the educational programs for new drugs is, uh, is more challenging with a virtual approach. We're tracking also the number of in-person versus virtual interactions with healthcare professionals, and clearly the in-person interactions are, are down, are still down dramatically. Mm-hmm. So it, it's all requiring new approaches, new ways of engaging, new ways of thinking about what content gets developed to share with the oncologists. I think companies are still very much committed to making these drugs, the new drugs, available to patients. But I think there's, uh, there's no question that it's a more challenging route than we've seen in prior years. All right. So let's switch gears to this new, you know, PBMs and payers have prior authorization, which we know. A lot of them have relaxed. I think you've reported on that also. Relaxed some of the rules. But at the end of the day, these copay accumulators and these copay shifts, these higher copays for people with cancer, we're hearing from all the advocacy groups that's having a devastating effect on people who just can't afford access. So we, I think one of your slides talked about your insurance coverage and growing concerns, you know, but do you have a growing concern about some of the shifts by these payers to put more economic burden on cancer patients? And, you know, what do you think the impact is? Well, out-of-pocket costs for cancer patients and indeed for all patients you know, remains an area of concern, even as actually, if you look across the average of all patients consuming all drugs, the average out-of-pocket cost isn't going up, but it is for, it seems, for the segment of patients, depending on their plan design and whether accumulators are being used and so on. So this issue of out-of-pocket costs, which is not a new one, mm-hmm. becomes even more accentuated when we have the rising levels of unemployment and people concerned about managing their budget. So this issue of financial toxicity and oncology is certainly accentuated due to the COVID-19 situation. Right. So let's go back to the insurance coverage. We still are, I know we're a week out of where we you did this for the last report, but all the economic trends still look rather concerning in the U.S. economy. Unemployment numbers still continue to be there. There's no real hope. I mean, I have family members who've been furloughed until the end of October. I mean, they're in the garment district. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you understand why no one's going. The stores aren't open yet. Right. But, you know, unemployment will continue to go. People will fall back on the state's the programs, and the unemployed, the hospitals might be in trouble from seeing more people who looked like they were employed, but only to find out, you know, they didn't have coverage or lost their coverage. What do you think the impact is going to be on the ecosystem from the lack of insurance? And, you know, whose burden will this fall on? Will the mm-hmm. government bail it out? What are your thoughts about this? Well, yeah, I think I think at the end of the day, you can only be talking about a prediction of the extent to which the the, the federal government, I guess, uh, ultimately is going to 
provide more support and assistance, whether it be to individuals or families directly or to states that are likely to see their Medicaid uh, roles expand significantly. So, you know, I think this comes back to the broader sort of macroeconomic set of factors and the role Uh that the federal government would play that requires congressional support. You know, how that plays out over the next, you know, 75 days, I think, you know, I'm not the one to really opine on that. But mm-hmm. the longer this gets delayed and the next tranche of support provided, the more people we have that inevitably are going to fall into financial distress. And then that does have a direct impact on patient care, particularly in this area of oncology. Mm-hmm. So it's a bit of a mess, I think it's fair to say. And there's no clear path to how this is going to be resolved, you know, through the end of the year or into 2021. Right. I just have to, you know, if I was tracking on the hospital sector, I'd probably have to continue to think they're under, going to be under a lot more stress as a lot of this care returns and people don't have insurance. So we'll have to see where it ends up. So my last question to you really is, you know, I'm very curious and so is everyone else. There's again, and, you and I have been around the business for a long time. Capitation, sharing risk, value-based contracting, two-sided risk. I mean, call it whatever you want. You know, we put it in a different dress for every every ball that we attend. But it's still dancing around the fact that we're trying to find ways to tie value to the delivery of these drugs and these therapies. You know, when we used to have a baseline that we felt we could really be assured of. It seems like the baselines maybe going forward are going to be going to be so much disruption, especially as COVID comes back and it wanes in different areas. Um, do you think that value-based contracting, looking at historical baselines, is the way, or do we going to have to move to a, a more lively index of a quarter-by-quarter index or something that's more, um, you know, reality-based as far as the timing of the cost and the delivery and the risk that people want to share? Well, I think, I mean, a couple of things on that. One is, you know, as we work our way through the pandemic, you know, at least for the near term, it looks like, you know, things are going to be not entirely back to that baseline level, but maybe, you know, plus or or, minus up to a minus 10% level relative to the baseline. So that actually takes some costs out. Uh, at least in the short term. Those costs might well return longer term when patients are eventually diagnosed. But I think in terms of the value-based contracting area, I mean, this is still an area that remains, I would say, immature, where we don't have the right infrastructure in place generally to be able to enter into value-based contracts. And, you know, I'm always hopeful that an event such as COVID-19 might actually trigger a new approach to Mm -hmm. value-based contracts, drawing on the greater availability of real-time information to track what's going on, a greater ability to interpret, you know, what's happening and uh, anticipate what those outcomes might be, and a further shift in who's bearing the risk for these contracts. Uh, But we've still got a long way to go in the U.S. healthcare system before we have a value-based system Uh fully in place. My hope is COVID-19 provides some level of impetus 
to move that ahead at a faster rate than we've been on in the past couple of years, at least. And that's why I did mention indexes, but you know, there. If you think about any other commodity or services traded by indexes today, and except healthcare, right, right. <laughs> it's our biggest you know economic sector. And you just wonder why you know someone down the Wall Street areas, wherever they're sitting today, are not reinventing this. So I'm going to end up with this. You know, my belief is COVID created a silver lining. It allowed us to kind of just reimagine or rethink everything's on the table or off the table. And so uh, I think you and I might be believers that disruption creates opportunity or right. change, right? Yep. So what do you want to leave us with? You know, what are your like personal thoughts of the next six, eight months ahead as we go through all the significant change? Is it going to have a silver lining in your head too? Do you see it that way? Yeah, so I definitely um, think about how COVID-19 can be viewed as a catalyst of positive change in our health system. I think it has highlighted the importance of understanding the natural history of disease and the importance of really getting back to reinforcing the importance of that scientific understanding of how disease progresses. I think it's also drawn enormous attention to disparities in the way patients are cared for and the way health services are delivered, including in cancer. And I think that can be a very positive lining to the extent we see more attention being given to that. And then I think also just the way in which information and technology have been used in the COVID area, how that can also be applied more broadly to other parts of the healthcare system as we resume a more normal system. I think that can also trigger, again, positive change for all of us in healthcare. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, Murray, I want to thank you on behalf of AVBCC for participating and sharing your uh, views, vision, and data with us. Obviously, we're in uncharted waters. No one seems to have the crystal ball ahead, but you know, certainly when you're looking at your data, it starts to feel a little bit more reassuring that we're returning to somewhat of a normal and we expect to see these fluctuations. I think we both agree, but uh, we'll probably have better line of sight to them and better predictability because, you know, it won't be our first rodeo. Right, right. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much, and I want you to have a great day, and, you know, great. we're, we're going to join us again hopefully shortly. Thank you. Great. Thanks, Bert. Thanks. Well, gee, that was just great today, and thank you for joining. Thank you to our faculty and our panelists as usual, great content and the sharing of information, usually important if we are going to improve access and the quality of care that we're responsible for delivering along with change in this ecosystem. Like today, there'll be other and future webcasts. We cover all topics and all stakeholders. Stay tuned. Also, we post this on our website. Very important that you can dial down and share with your colleagues. So we encourage you to do that. Additionally, if any of you have any comments, send them in through our website. If anyone would like to participate in speaking or has some other ideas, please share them with us. That's our mission. Thank you for joining. Talk again.